0: Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. This is Cricket Lou along with my broadcasting partner. Pat Larson, hello everyone. And today we are joined by uh, another partner of mine, uh, John Belomarek. John and I are uh, the co-authors of a new book published by O'Reilly Media. And uh, John used to work for me. Um, He had to suffer through that uh, through that ordeal but now he's escaped uh, to to another large uh, firm here in the valley so welcome John
1: all right thank you happy to be here
0: I wasn't sure whether I was supposed to attribute your uh, <laughs> your employment or, or not but certainly anybody who's interested can find that out
1: <laughs> no no it's no problem at all
0: do you want to describe briefly what what you do for Google
1: Sure. Um, so I'm am I'm on the GKE team, the Kubernetes open source team. Um, my effort uh, has been around well, one um, before joining Google, working with Cricket, we put together. Um, you know, we, we, we helped bring CoreDNS to Kubernetes and put Kubernetes put, put CoreDNS as the the de, the default DNS server for in cluster DNS in Kubernetes, and uh, so I got involved with Kubernetes in that regard, in the, the networking special interest group, SIG Network. But actually, since coming to Google, I've been more involved in the architecture group, which essentially helps define the policies and direction of Kubernetes overall, code quality, code organization, um, and in particular for me on um, conformance, which defines what Kubernetes is, and um, production readiness are the things I'm working on right now.
0: Cool. So. So maybe it's worth saying, since our audience is mostly a um, uh, a DNS-focused audience, that Kubernetes is a sort of container orchestration system, right?
1: That's correct, yep. Um, essentially, it manages um, the scheduling and um, sort of uh, keeping alive and, and auto-scaling and all of that for containers across a cluster of machines.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. So, Matt, do you, did you want to start with the mailbag, or should we start start by talking about uh, S?
2: Well, I was going to say, uh, why don't since uh, since John's here, uh, why don't you guys go ahead and get the, the information about the book in upfront?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a, a a book, as I said, published by O'Reilly Media on S, which is called. Um, not particularly creatively learning Core DNS, but it's enough to give people the the basics of um, how to use Core DNS in one of these Kubernetes managed or or containerized environments. But I, I think maybe one of the questions that some of our listeners might be asking is, well, why in the world is DNS related <laughs> to Kubernetes and, uh, and and these containerized environments? Can can you walk us through that, John?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, well, if you think about containers and, and the way that um, services built using containers operate, I mean, DNS DNS is everywhere, right? So DNS is involved in, in a few different ways. One is you want to expose that, that service to the world, in which case you need DNS records, but actually that's not the role that Core DNS generally plays. Um, it's actually playing more of a role in cluster for DNS. So if you think about that, a given cluster is going to run dozens of services, perhaps. And those services, a lot of them are talking to one another. The containers that provide those services are coming and going uh, based on scale, based on other factors. And so the IP addresses of those individual containers is changing continuously. Um, So we use DNS to be able to find uh, all of those, those containers as they come and go, either um, individually IP addresses of those containers using SRV records or um, multiple uh, A records for the same name, or using uh, a, what's called a cluster IP, which is um, a, a kind of internal load balancing VIP, but we still give it, give it a DNS name so that as we move services from cluster to cluster or, or bring services up and down, we have a consistent way to refer to those services.
0: And there are are other mechanisms for f- locating services uh, within a cluster, right? There are, there are non DNS ways of, of of doing this as well. You, there are APIs, for example.
1: Yeah. So there's the Kubernetes API. Everything's kind of centered around the Kubernetes API in Kubernetes, which is a essentially a REST based REST based API, um, uh, although usually not using JSON encoding, and it gets a little technical, complicated uh, API-wise, but the one kind of cool feature it has is this watch feature that lets you, you listen on a particular uh, API. And um, so typically, you know, an application that's built bespoke for Kubernetes could actually just go ahead and use that API. Uh, however, of course, most applications are already exist and were not built for Kubernetes and so they use DNS. So um, like I said, DNS is everywhere and it's built into so many different components already. Those components get reused as part of container images and so uh, and they refer other to other services within Kubernetes and need to be able to find them. And in fact, even if you were building a brand new service that was intended to be deployed in Kubernetes, um, if the only thing you were using the Kubernetes API for is service discovery, then it's really, really a bad idea to use the Kubernetes API when we have something that works uh, really well for that already. That's standard and, and can be found everywhere. Because although Kubernetes is wonderful, um, in uh, you know in five, six, ten years, who knows what will be what we'll be using? But I bet we'll still be using DNS.
0: Right, right. So, so it has something to do maybe with. Uh application developers uh being accustomed to to using dns to locate resources on a network and and this is this familiar territory to them
2: no yeah cool thanks
0: <laughs> the somebody you you probably know and and remember matt Meek gibbon is the guy who actually wrote the original core dns and he's still one of the main contributors to to core dns and and if if i have my history correct he He had written a a few other DNS server implementations that worked with um, etcd, which is what John described, which is sort of a key value store used in a lot of these containerized environments. Um, But then he saw a a web server written in Go called Caddy, and kind of admired Caddy's architecture. Caddy had this this, um, uh, plugin-based system, and so basically, Meek had written the sort of preeminent Go language DNS library, and like the old commercials with uh, the the peanut butter and the chocolate, you know, he said, "Hmm, if I put the two of these together, I could I could build a new DNS server," and uh, thus begat CoreDNS. But um, you know, John and a lot of his efforts. Um, uh, contributed to making CoreDNS suitable for use in, in a lot of these other environments too. So there had to be plugins written to make it appropriate for use in Kubernetes environments.
2: Yeah, I've I've done just a little looking at CoreDNS, and it, it's really cool. the The plugin architecture is uh, especially cool. It reminds me a little bit of the Unbound prototype that uh, that Dave Blackett did uh, at VeriSign back in oh, mid mid two thousands probably mid to late 2000s um that was done in that was done in java and he had a it, well maybe plugin is going too far it wasn't that it was but but definitely a modular uh, a modular approach that would have lent itself to plugins had that particular code base survived
0: yeah yeah and a, as you know i'm no developer but uh john and other people i trust have told me that it's it's much easier to extend Core DNS using plugins than it is for example, to write new functionality in Bind.
2: Well, just about anything is easier than that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I I know that, uh, at least as part of the standard Core DNS distribution at this point, it doesn't do recursion. Um, Do you know, is anybody working on that?
1: Well, we had a couple of community members. So uh, well, as you know, Core DNS is open source, it's on GitHub, um, and it's pretty active. We have a lot of different contributors, and we have people who come in, and you know, we, we try to avoid drive-bys, but but they happen. And um, the there have been a few people who've really expressed an interest, but um, nobody's taken it all the way yet. So what what you can do today is we we can compile it with um, libunbound, which it allows you to do use all of that code for your recursive. Uh, code and the rest of Cordian S for your authoritative the the, the the you know that makes it bigger that means you have to compile I guess I didn't mention Cordian is written in Go it's not written in C or C++ so um, it's it doesn't directly you know uh, compile in with C code unless you set some special options and things like that um, which we can do but then you, it it in Go code, typically you like to build things and link them all statically, and it becomes more difficult to do that when you've got the C code in there. So everything it makes everything a little more complicated. Um, but as I understand it, that works pretty effectively. I haven't run any services with that, so I don't know for sure. But uh, as far as people working on native Go recursive functionality, there's been some interest, but nobody's carried it through to completion. And I know in the past, Meek... Uh, who's sort of the the benevolent dictator for life for and DNS he has been very hesitant because of the you know just how hard that is to build a a, a recursive dNS server that 's correct and um, so you know it 's not something we 're pursuing directly, but if somebody comes along and has something good and it works and it 's proven we can we can integrate it
0: he had He had expressed some interest in something called SDNS, um, but I don't think that's that's gone any any further. but I think SDNS is like a a recursive DNS server written in go, and he thought maybe maybe it would be possible to graph that code into core DNS.
2: And are people using core DNS um, outside of a containerized environment? Do
1: you know significant deployments doing that? You know, where I think people use it outside of, it, yes, definitely people use it outside of Kubernetes, although Kubernetes is kind of the, the probably the most widely deployed um, use case. Uh, I know of organizations that use it internally for service discovery of things that have nothing to do with, with Kubernetes. Um, I guess some of those are public, so like SoundCloud, for example, uh, has hundreds of Cordian instances running to do internal service discovery for things. Um, There's a bunch of organizations listed actually in the GitHub. Uh, We have a a file there that describes people that are utilizing Quotinus for different things. Um, I do believe there are also some people using it uh, in, well, I know for example Infoblox is using it in (laughs) uh, branch office type of on-prem environments, but there's also uh, I believe some uh, ISPs or you know service providers using it for their um, their CPE type of equipment in their CPE equipment.
0: Yeah, we we, we use it, Matt, um, in our our cloud-based secure recursive service. So that it's a uh, a service called Blocks One Threat Defense, and basically it's you know uh, secure recursive DNS in the cloud. So you send us a query, and if it uh, corresponds to an IP address that we think is gonna cause you some problems or uh, what have you, then, then we'll direct you somewhere other than the the correct destination. But,
2: sure, but it, I was gonna it, it's gonna say with its filtering rewrite rules, it's perfect for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it, 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 it turns out the core DNS is actually flexible enough to be useful both in the cloud part of it and in the client part of it, so we use, um core DNS down um, at the on the client side. So if you're running, for example, our, our blocks one endpoint, um, it's it's responsible for tagging upstream queries with uh, identifying information about the client so we know which policy to apply to you. And so uh, if we detect, for example, that your machine is infected, we can we can identify which machine it is that's inf- infected, which you couldn't do with a, a, a raw, naked uh, DNS query. Um, but since you're carrying that sensitive information, in addition to, to slapping the sensitive information onto to the query, you also want to protect that. So we, we send that over TLS. And, and CoreDNS is perfect for both adding the identifying information and then also sending it over TLS into the cloud. And then up in the cloud, we have corresponding CoreDNS instances um, and of course, we have to have the ability to horizontally scale them because we can have a lot of clients sending us queries all at the same time, and then those will strip that identifying information off, um, look up the the applicable policy, and and all the rest. So it's 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 a very flexible piece of code for, um, you know, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that it it actually works in both of those very very different environments.
2: Cool. Did you guys want to say anything else about the book, or about Cordines, or Kubernetes, or?
1: <laughs> well, we'll say that, that you should buy the book because it will change your life.
0: Okay. <laughs> yes, we would love that, and it has a fish on the cover.
2: <laughs> yeah. Did you have any say into the O'Reilly
0: animal? No, I. It's funny because initially, um, I I had a I had a, a galley, I guess, or a, a of the of the book, and I. I showed it at at some meeting and somebody said, "Oh, that's a smallmouth bass on the cover." And I said, "Oh, really? A smallmouth bass." And so I I looked it up, you know, googled the uh the basic information about a smallmouth bass, and one of the first things that popped up was that one of the most effective lures to use with smallmouth bass is crickets. <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, I thought, man, I'm being punked by my <laughs> by my publisher." <laughs> it turns out it's actually not a a smallmouth bass. Um it's a Comer fish. I don't know what a Comer fish is, but uh, according to the colophon, it's a saltwater fish found in the Mediterranean and Black Seas. It's it's, a, it's I'm a sure there fish. are
1: crickets that it could eat there too.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there are there are Mediterranean and Black Sea crickets that uh, it's probably it's probably fond of.
2: Cool. Well, congratulations on the book. That's uh, that's a big deal. I'm happy for you guys.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Well, should we go to well, the should
2: mailbag? We go, to, go to the mailbag? Oh, <laughs> great hosts think alike.
0: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: Yeah, let's do yeah. it. All right. Well, the mailbag's a little slim, not surprisingly, but uh, we we do have an email from Shane Kerr, a uh, friend and former co-worker of mine at Dine. And um, he says, hello, Mr. DNS, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, so he, he goes on at, at some some length, but he helpfully gave us a TLDR at the top, and it's basically, um, why do the DNS RFCs forbid an NS, MX or SRV from using a CNAME as a target?
0: Right, right, an alias, as it were. Right.
2: Why do you have to point to a canonical name with an A record or a quad A as opposed to uh, a CNAME?
0: Right. And we had a a brief discussion of this uh, before we, before we began recording. And, and one of the things that I sort of distantly remembered, probably from writing the very first edition of DNS and Bind, was that um, uh, if, you, if you think about the way that MX records are processed by mail transport agents, um, if you're, let's say, an intermediate mail transport agent, maybe you're one of three and you're the one with the intermediate preference and you get a piece of, of email, you're supposed to look up the MX records And then you're supposed to look for yourself in that list of MX records, right? And if you're in the list of MX records, obviously you don't wanna send the mail to yourself because that's a mailing loop. And you also don't wanna send the mail farther away from the eventual destination. So to a less preferred uh, mail exchanger. So you eliminate those those less preferred mail exchangers. And in fact, you you eliminate mail exchangers that have the same preference that you do. And I do remember that uh, that process of sort of trimming the list of, of mail exchangers would not necessarily work if somebody listed an alias for uh, a, a Mail transport agent in the list There's no guarantee of course that the mail transport agent knows that that alias points to it. So that could in fact uh, Cause mail looping and I think that's even in the book It must be true then <laughs> For, uh, for it- some
2: value of true <laughs> And the other thing we talked about was just the general complexity that it introduces, particularly when you think of C uh, names as targets of NS records. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's already going to be one level of indirection there to look up the, uh, the name that's the target, and to add yet another one uh, you know, in terms of giving, making uh, rope to hang yourself with. You know, that's, that's even more.
0: That's right. The glue-fetching routines would have to be uh, a lot more patient if they had to chase down potentially several levels of of C names in order to find the the resulting um, the resulting A or or quad A records or both would would also h- potentially cause some some interesting issues with with um, pointed domain names that were were outside of your bailiwick as as they say
2: yeah let's think about that. I mean, of course, you can do that with NS records as
0: as it is. Right, right. I'm just thinking that you know recursive DNS servers nowadays are are more cautious about the way that they deal with with CNAME records. It used to be that the authoritative could say, "Hey, you know, I'm authoritative for both of those zones the one that uh, the the alias is in, and the one that the target of the alias is in. So I'll just give you the 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 ultimate answer." Um and save you yeah, the oh, trouble. I didn't believe me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And nowadays that doesn't really that doesn't really pass muster. Most recursives uh, say, ah, thank you very much, but I think I'll I'll do that myself.
2: And that's part of the lore. I don't know that that's written down anywhere, you know, along with the whole the whole bailiwick concept, the idea that in terms of glue, you know, you should treat glue that's not in bailiwick uh, as suspect when it comes back to you in a referral. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know that it's written down. And so it's the sort of thing that if you're writing a, you know, to sort of come full circle in a conversation, if you're, if you're writing a recursive engine from scratch, that's the sort of thing you have to know that I don't think you can easily or possibly at all uh, find written down somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that brings me to a new pet peeve of mine, uh, which which. I discovered at the recent DNS OARC meeting, which is the mispronunciation of Bailiwick as Ballywick.
2: Oh, dear. (laughs) Just as well I wasn't there, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've also heard authoritative. (laughs) Yes, yes, authoritative. I mean, hey, if you're not a native English speaker. We'll certainly give you plenty of slack there. But the people who were saying Ballywick (laughs) were native English speakers, near as I could tell.
2: All right. Well, I think that's an honest answer for Shane's question. So thank you, Shane. Uh, We should remind everyone now, even as we always do at the end of the show, that you can uh, send us questions and they will probably eventually get answered uh, to MrDNSMRDNS at ask-mrdns.com. Absolutely. So I I think we've reached the witty banter about pop culture (laughs) point of the podcast
0: episode. Well, the obvious question to ask at this point, given that it's Wednesday, November 13th, um, is uh, who's watched the first episode of The Mandalorian?
2: You know, that is exactly what I was going to bring up. I have no way (laughs) of proving it. You. You don't have to believe me, but I was, I was totally going to jump on that and ask. So I, I signed up to Disney Plus yesterday, got my free trial, and I have not watched it because uh, my daughter is a huge uh, Star Wars fan. She's actually, she's sort of turning into a kind of a sci-fi comics person. She's a huge Marvel fan as, as well, but, wow. uh, but, but she, uh, I, I'm not going to watch it without, without her. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, busy... Freshman in high school she 's got a social life and homework and I was going to say I have none of those things, but I have a social life mm-hmm. so not yet Have you watched it
0: i i haven't watched it uh and uh, sat here two of my two of my friends and coworkers both saw the first episode, and they both enjoyed it. John did you watch it?
1: I have not watched it so to, to give you an idea uh how far behind uh I am on the, uh, the the pop culture. My wife and I just finished season 1 of Game of Thrones. So, oh. <laughs> we're, we're we're a little behind on that. Maybe maybe in another 5 years we'll get to that. Okay. okay. <laughs> well,
0: you'll be able to binge it at that point.
1: There we go. Yep.
0: Yeah. We did go off and see um JoJo Rabbit this weekend. Is that on on either of your radar?
2: No, I don't know what that is. I will Confess to our millions of listeners.
1: <laughs> I I am also unfamiliar with that.
0: Well, so there's a, a a New Zealander, a director named Taika Waititi. He's the director who made Thor Ragnarok. If you're a if you're a Marvel person, um, and he's he he made a, a handful of of smaller movies before being handed the reins of the Thor franchise. Uh, he made. One uh, hilarious mockumentary called what we do in the shadows, which is a vampire mockumentary. Oh, you've um, talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. So this this movie is actually uh, Jojo Rabbit is based on based on a book um, about a, a young boy living in. I think he's actually living in Austria or though it might be Germany uh, towards the end of World War Two. And he's a member of the Hitler youth, and, and he imagines uh, a, uh, he has an imaginary friend in, in sort of a cartoonish ver- version of Adolf Hitler. Um, it, it, and then he, he begins to discover sort of the lie that is uh, national socialism. and it, it, despite you know what probably sounds like pretty heavy subject matter, it's actually very funny <laughs> and very touching. Um, so well worth uh, well worth seeing if you uh, if you have the chance and if you like if you like Taika Waititi's um, brand of humor certainly everyone should go see what we do in the shadows because that is one of the funniest damn movies I've seen. <laughs> All right, I, this is the as I said
2: this is the at least the second time I've heard you mention that so I need to just go ahead and check it out.
1: That sounds that way and I I think uh, that the the, the what did you call it, Jojo? That one. That sounds like something uh, something my son would like a lot too. So I'd like I'd love to check that out.
0: Okay, good, good. Let me know if you do see it.
2: Well, we're we're reaching the uh, ideal podcast episode length of thirty <laughs> minutes. Uh, we're not one of those podcasts that uh, forces you to listen to two hours of Woody banter. Uh, we keep it keep it relatively concise. So should I take us out? Sure, please do. All right. Well, thank you again, everyone, for listening to our uh, occasional episodes. Uh, <laughs> I will make another plea for questions, which uh, we do answer eventually. Uh, please send them to MrDNS at ask mrdnscom com. Um, thanks, especially to our guest, John. John, I I don't want to mispronounce your last name. Can you can you say it again? Bellameric. Okay. Uh, so. So thank you so much to John, and uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye.